This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Adam's new novel, Bird, which is available through adammorris.net or through Amazon or through wherever good books are sold. Welcome to Talking Wild Madness, episode 66. Uh, I I think I'm in day 16 of total uh, total sobriety, beerlessness, winelessness, whiskeylessness, and glorious eight-hour sleep, nine-hour sleeps every single night. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, if you are an insomniac, you may not be an insomniac. You may be uh, abusing alcohol, <laughs> maybe. Uh, or you might be an insomniac, in which case I, that's that's a terrible curse. Um, I am looking forward to having a beer. I've got uh, what have I got? It's the tw- I've got twelve days to go, uh, and then the four weeks are up. So I'm counting a month. Uh, I'm I'm doing a, a February month, even though it's uh, even though it's May and June. Um, I am looking forward to having a drink. Uh, quite a bit, not like I'm not. I'm not like foaming at the mouth for it, which is really nice because I thought I might have been, but I'm not. Uh, the days are a little bit. They're a bit longer, and they're they are a little bit more boring. I have to be completely honest. The days certainly are a little bit more boring, and the interactions you have with other people, um, they do have just a little bit less passion to them. They have a little bit less spark to them. Uh, conversation with a good friend is still good, but it's not uh, magical, or it's not as as magical as it as it usually is. Uh, it's Paul Daniels magical, where whereas it's usually David Blaine magical. That there, there, that's that's the only magician references that I know. So I don't even know if if uh, if that if those magician references are. Uh, yeah, paint the picture that I'm trying to that I'm trying to paint. Paul Daniels was a magician from the '80s, and he used to appear on Irish television on the occasional talk show that that you would get uh, that you would get in Ireland. And he was like the first magician. Ireland had when I was growing up there had um, I think like three television channels, and there was never f- movies on there. Um, you had like two movies a year. It would be a James Bond movie and Willy Wonka, the original Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka. And anyway, yeah, so TV was a very kind of a limited uh, small space with not much happening on it. And I suppose you could argue now that television is a very wide space with with not much happening on it. Uh, But Paul Daniels would appear anyway, as magicians often do, and he would do these things that no one had ever seen them before. I, I'd imagine it would be like uh, when Bruce Lee started appearing on driving theaters in uh, across the world, especially in America, and people were watching this uh, small Asian man mess up, uh, you know, a room full of other Asian men sometimes or a room full of menacing-looking white dudes with, with uh, beards. And it was just, it was like the combination of what he was doing was brilliant and it happened to be the very first time that you saw it, which also made it brilliant. So like when people saw Elvis for the first time, it was the first time white mainstream society had seen 
kind of rock and roll, I suppose, in, in the flesh. And it was amazing. Now, if you listen to old Elvis records now, they're awful. I mean, they're really not very good. There, there's probably, man, I, without running down, without running down the original King, uh, maybe ten songs that Elvis did are hold water, and I think that's being really, really generous. Uh, he did do that comeback album where he had that song "True Love Travels on a Gravel Road." That was that was quite good. But yeah, some of that early Elvis music, man, was just dirt. And I mean, his films were atrociously bad. But he was the first one to, it's like, oh, what's this? And Paul Daniels was kind of like that. He was like the Elvis of magic in 1980s Ireland. And I think he actually might have been English. I don't think he was an Irishman because it was it was heavy Catholic uh, Ireland in the early 80s. So I don't know how... I don't know how welcome you would be being a magician. I think that might get you put in, in some kind of uh, satanic class by the by the by the powers that be. Uh, I don't think there was a, not that I'm like a, a heavy user or a heavy shopper in in pornography shops. Uh, it's amazing that porno shops are still uh, like a viable retail experience. Like no matter where you go, there's always adult stores uh, around. And considering that now you can purchase everything online, it, it is absolutely baffling to me that that sex shops, I don't mean prostitution shops, I mean like where you can go and buy, buy uh, all manner of vibrating instruments and paddles and leather masks and ropes and what it really sounds like I shopped in there, doesn't it? Uh, but it's amazing how they still are, are there. They're still thriving. They're the only things that, that remain in the one spot. You can have a, an entire suburb that's gentrified, that, that gets changed, that gets bought and sold, and yet the sex shop just remains. The bottle shop always remains and the sex shop always remains. It's very, very interesting, very, very peculiar. But anyway, I think, yeah, you would probably be more welcome to have to open a, a pornography shop than be a magician in early 80s Ireland. Uh, I think the first pornography shop, sex shop, what are they called? Adult stores? Uh, I think the first one opened in the 90s, 1990-something in, in Ireland, uh, like 1992 or something. Uh, yeah, it would have been a brave a brave and horny soul that opened the first porno store in, in Ireland. Uh, but they did. Anyway, Paul, and it might have been Paul Daniels might have been involved. Who knows? But he would come on to these shows and he would do these little card tricks or he would, you know, make a make a table tennis ball disappear under a, under a see-through glass or, or whatever. And he was this fantastical uh, – he was a little fella. He was a little man. But you could uh, – yeah, you could sit in wonder, in, in, uh, in awe at, at, at Paul Daniels' uh, card tricks. Uh, I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure how we got onto magicians. I'm not. I'm not 100 sure. But anyway, I'm looking forward to having a drink. I'm looking forward to a really nice session with with my friends. Uh, I'm looking forward to sitting on the balcony with a bit of sun and some really cold pint glasses of beer and maybe some whiskey to go with it. And maybe some oregano and black tea, uh, rolly cigarettes uh, on top of that as well. But I'm not looking forward to giving up the sleeps. 
I'm not looking forward to. So I need to find a balance somewhere in the middle because I want to keep sleeping eight, eight hours a night. It is absolutely beautiful waking up. I really feel I haven't felt better. Uh, and it's only been two weeks and two days. And I, I feel like I li- literally, I feel, I would say I felt 10 years younger, but when I was 10 years younger, I was um, a lot heavier and I was drinking a lot heavier. So but I don't even feel 10 years younger because if I felt 10 years younger and was myself 10 years younger, then, then I would feel uh, exhausted and, and bloated and heavy. So I, I, yeah, I feel tremendous. So it'll be interesting going forward to see if we can strike a balance in this uh, in this madness, in this dance of of inebriation and uh, discipline, and and see see what comes what comes out. Uh, some very exciting news for uh, the book bird. I have managed to land an agent in Sydney, and. Uh, I the, the the book is now going to be getting pitched to a um, a TV station here in Australia. Now, obviously, we are at the very beginning of this process, and this process obviously could amount to absolutely nothing. Uh, but it's yeah, it's something that's that's very exciting to me. I'm, I'm very very excited. Uh, it's a small small step, uh, but it's a small step in the right direction. Uh, and and in 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 Australia, if you're listening from uh, from anywhere else, there's really only about a dozen agents in in Australia who are who are able to take on a an artist or a writer or a book or whatever and try to uh, try to turn it into a, a you know, stage play or a TV series or a film. Uh, there really isn't that many, so you don't get many chances. You kind of contact everybody and. You know, three three don't get back to you. Three emails come back saying that this is the wrong email. Three emails come back saying, oh, "No, I'm not really interested." And one email comes back saying, "Yes, I am interested. This this sounds very interesting. Uh, let's let's do it." So that's that's the stage we're at. Uh, there's a long time between opportunities, though, when it comes to this stuff, uh, because basically, if no one, if everyone turned it down. I would essentially have to write another book, uh, and then that would that would be another few years of of bringing that book to fruition. So it's it's very different, and because the book is very Australian centric, like it's a obviously it's a book about Indigenous Australians in a uh, in a colonial modern prison system. So I don't know, I don't know how that I don't know how, how many like international audiences would be very interested in that. But then, I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I make, I'm trying to make judgments about things that I, that I, I don't know the moving pieces of. And I was thinking, would Australians be interested in, say, a Canadian Indigenous story about Canadian prisons? And I reckon they probably would. And maybe, maybe English people or German people or American people would be interested in maybe in in the indigenous uh, in the indigenous situation here in Australia, because I suppose it has echoes across almost everyone's history, post-colonial wise. Um, anyway, man, we'll see how we go. Uh, all we have is hope, and 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 that's what we will we will keep going with hope. 
the glass is always half full until there is no glass. And as long as we're drawing breath, there is the metaphorical glass, or is it the allegorical glass, or is it the metaphysical glass? There's some glass, there's a glass that isn't made of glass at all, uh, that, that is either allegorical, metaphysical, uh, or, or metaphorical, or what's the word when we're talking about a lesson that is learnt? Uh, it's not necessarily capital T true. No, it is capital T true. It is not small t true. Apocryphal. Is it apocryphal? I think it is. So it's either an apocryphal glass, it's a metaphysical glass, it's a metaphorical glass, or it's an allegorical glass. I might actually spend the rest of the day seeing if I can work out the difference between those three things. So uh, an apocryphal story, if I have a correct, an apocryphal story is, I think I've told this story on the podcast before, it's when Charles Darwin was writing his book, The Origin of the Species. And obviously, as he was formulating this theory of evolution, it was running in direct contrast to his beliefs that he was brought up in, uh, that the world was created in seven days. And this was causing Charles Darwin a considerable amount of angst. I would imagine he would be in the throes of restlessness and insomnia, uh, regardless of how much wine or beer or whiskey he abstained from. And I don't even know if Charles Darwin was a, was a drinker to begin with. Probably wasn't. Uh, he might have been, but I don't think so. So as he was writing The Origin of the Species, the story, the apocryphal story goes that he used to he have a writing room, and in the writing room on one of the walls there'd be a, a little curtain, and he would pull back the curtain and there'd, there'd be this kind of enclave inside the wall. And in that little space in the wall would be a bucket. And he would make himself so distressed, mentally distressed with what he was writing and how it was running in direct, um, <laughs> in direct opposition to his upbringing, to who he actually was. So I think he was a minister, wasn't he? Wasn't he, uh, wasn't he a lay preacher or something at the very least? But it used to make him so physically ill he actually used to vomit and he would have this bucket nearby so when he was writing the origin of the species when it literally got physically too much for him to contemplate and write about he would reach for this bucket and vomit into it to make himself well just to get past the uh the torture that he was putting himself through now some people say that charles darwin was actually ill at the time he was writing it anyway and that bucket was not uh, was not actually for for him to vomit up his 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 uh, the after effects of his feelings, uh, but apocryphally, it's a great story and it and it tells a good um, it tells a good tale. I hope I've got that word right. I hope I've got that word right because I think I might be mixing it up with apocryphery, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that word right. Apocryphery. He's the guy in Romeo and Juliet who prepares the potion. So the apothecary is the basically the, the medieval pharmacist. Uh, so when you go to the doctor, if you're the type of person that goes to the doctor in, in the modern age, and you go to the doctor and he fills out a script for you and you, he gives you a script and then you've got to go and 
you've got to go to the pharmacist. Well, in the olden days, you went to the doctor or you went to the you went to the the, the old lady who, who now would be called the, uh, the witch, and she would tell you that you've got such and such, and you need to go to the apothecary and and order order a bag of, uh, of lavender and, and rosemary and, and, a, and, a, and the juice from a fox's eye and, uh, and and the ear of a trout. I don't know if trouts have ears, but that might have been, uh, maybe that's part of it. Because they used to send people off on, on amazing journey. Before I get into the trout's ear, if you go to Germany today, uh, if you go to the pharmacist in Germany, it's actually called, uh, there's a word, like apothecary written on on top of the pharmacist, um, apocathe or apocatha or something, apocathery or something. I don't know, not sure. But I, I remember being in Germany, looking up there and, and thinking of of Romeo and Juliet and uh, and and the witch. So this idea of sending someone sending someone away to find a trout's ear. This this is similar to. Uh, uh, gizzard therapy that some African tribes practice. Uh, if in the modern day Western world, if you are depressed, if you're not feeling well, uh, what you do is you take yourself to the doctor and depending on the doctor and depending on who you are and depending on your own beliefs and depending on how you navigate the world, you say to the doctor, look, I'm very, very, I'm very sad. I can't get out of bed. Took me, took me three weeks just to get here and I'm not feeling the best, that doctor, depending on who he is and how he navigates the world, he very easily, very possibly, and probably will write you out a prescription for some depressive medication. Might give you some, uh, I, I don't know, when you pretend to know uh, what, what that medication might be, whatever it is, Luvox, Percocet, Diazepam, Anadorel, I'm just making up words and, and repeating chemist products that I've heard. Uh, and then you go and you go to the pharmacist or the apothecary and then you order your uh, your tablets and your pills or whatever and they give you, you know, they give you uh, two weeks worth of, ha of happy pills. And uh, I always really love the fact that when you go to the uh, chemist, especially if you are in a small town, there's like a 19-year-old girl working behind the counter and She's been working there for a year. She's been there a while. She's been there long enough to know what what the what the prescriptions are. So if, if you're going and getting a prescription for violent diarrhea, she knows you have violent diarrhea. Not that I've ever been to the apothecary uh, with violent diarrhea, but it's interesting. It's very it's it's very very interesting. It's that same level, that same kind of. Uh, shame or guilt you might feel if you visit the bottle shop, the same bottle shop too often during a week and the same person is on, is working behind the counter and you're in there buying your third bottle of whiskey that week. Not that I've ever done that either. Uh, and they just kind of, they don't necessarily give you a look, but they just, they look at you and you look back at them and uh, there's an exchange, there's, a, there's an exchange of understanding of understanding and and humanness ultimately I suppose but it's always nice it's always nice if that's an equal relationship because you never get to you never get to see what what uh, what they're buying in their shameful moments in their on their weaker days you never really get to see what what uh, they're coming encounter with coming encounter with what they are encount encountering 
so then you go and you know you go home and you uh, you flick on episode season three of Black Mirror and you take your depressive pills and and uh, you might have some insane crazy dreams where white snakes are pouring out of holes in your legs or whatnot and you have a very very weird night and you wake up and you take another pill and you repeat and repeat and hopefully after a week or two or a week or three or a month or four these these feelings of depression and loneliness and anguish and despair hopefully they start to subside and and maybe you uh, maybe you give credit to the to the pills that, that you've received and you don't kill yourself which is which is a great victory and you get to you get to you get to continue to meditate on that glass that metaphysical allegorical metaphorical um uh, apocryphal glass and you get to meditate on whether you want to see it as half full or half empty and uh, that's one of the, I think really I honestly believe that of, of all the complex philosophies and options with which to view existence that very very simple idea of is do you see the glass as half full or half empty uh, it, it, to me that sounds like a very Taoist question but I think it's such a powerful question. How do you see the world? Do you see it in a more positive way or a more negative way? Uh, and then, of course, you could say, you know, that glass might not be full of delicious beer. That glass might be full of uh, painful medicine that you have to take. So if it's half empty, it means you're nearly finished. So maybe that's good as well. But how do you perceive the world? How do you respond to the world before you have even considered what the uh, stimulus is, before you even know what it is that you're going to respond to, before you even know what the world has in store for you? You have already have it in your head habitually that you're going to try and respond to that in a positive way. I really think that, that really transforms. It separates the men from the boys existentially, I, I, I really do believe. Um, if you want that, if you want that world to be dark and, and lonely and and, dis, and, a, and a place of despair, it's it's there. It's waiting for you. It can cater for for that for that outlook. It certainly can. If you want it to be the opposite, you might have to work a little bit harder. But it's also there. It's also there, and it's also ready to cater for your needs. But anyway, if you're if you're in an East African tribe. Now I just threw that direction out, so let's I'll, I'll withdraw that because it might be West African, or it might be South African, or it might even be North African, but I don't think so. I don't think it's an Egyptian thing. It could be Northeast African. If you're depressed, there's a there's certain tribes that if you are not feeling well, there's no first of all there's no GP to go to, and second of all there's no there's no chemist to go to, and and third of all there's no Luvox or Adenol or Percocet or whatever they happen to be to get your hands on. So they have, they've come up with these, these other ways of treating despondency and despair and depression, uh, all, the, all the D words. And one of the ways in which certain African tribes deal with one of their members not feeling very well mentally is they get a hold of them and it, it, I think if they do it on a day where everyone has nothing to do, so the equivalent of a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday morning, whatever day that is on, on in the East African tribal calendar, and they take let's let's say it's 
let's say it's a young man. Let's say the young man's 22 years old. They will all gather around him and they'll, they'll put him in the middle of the, of this circle in the village. And he's, you know, he's wearing a loincloth. He's stripped down. Maybe he's wearing, maybe he's wearing a pair of, uh, of, um, of Adidas shorts. Let's upgrade it a little bit here. Maybe he's not in the loincloth. So he's in his, he's in close to his underwear and he's, and he's standing up. He's got that beautiful West African tribal physique and he's got that beautiful West African tribal posture and he looks good, but he feels terrible. He feels sad. He feels, he feels sad down to his bones, down to his soul. He feels sad. So what do they do? They get the entrails of uh, pigs and they coil the bloody entrails all around his body. They, they coil it around his face. They coil it around his arms. They basically rope him up with the intestines of, of a dead animal and they then begin throwing things. They begin throwing offal at him and they spit on him and they throw uh, blood at him and they yell and shout at him and they curse him and they abuse him and they might whip him with uh, a few light uh, branches of a tree. And this goes on for hours. This goes on for the afternoon. And, of course, the person in the middle who's been tied up with the intestines of farm animals who's now covered in spit and sand and dust and blood and phlegm um, is is mentally breaking down is weeping is crying is angry but is is but they're they're trapped in this space uh and at the end at the end of this of the end of this ceremony if you want to call it a ceremony or at the end of this existential exorcism um generally when it's all over um everyone you know, everyone gives them a cuddle and he gets washed down and he gets a nice hot meal and, and, uh, and he goes to bed. And when he wakes up on, on Monday morning, he feels pretty good. Or he feels, at least he feels, he feels a little better than he did um, uh, on, on Sunday morning before. Uh, and I think as, you know, as, as traumatic an experience as that would be, uh, getting, getting, uh, getting tied up with the entrails of an animal and, and having abuse hurled at you for an afternoon by, by your family and friends and, and loved ones. And you, well, basically your tribe. I mean, we, we, we talk about that in, uh, in the Western world. It's almost like a, a Facebook cliche, you know, Oh, this is my tribe. I'm a cyclist. My tribe, we put on latex spandex and, and, and cycle in, in a group together. And then we go for coffee. That's my tribe. It's pretty fucking weird, but that's what some people do. But to have your actual tribe, like your actual tribe, uh, you know, the the epistemological tribe itself, where the actual tribe name definition came from, to to have them surrounding you and hurling abuse and blood and spit and phlegm and maybe shit and who knows what else they can get their hands on you're also the center of attention. You're also, you're also, you're also heard. You're being listened to. Your pain has been acknowledged by your entire community. 
your your pain has been recognized as something that needs to be addressed. And even though you're in the middle, even though you are tied up, uh, even though you you are in a very weird situation and at least comparatively weird as far as the Western world goes, at least you're not alone and you are being dragged through an experience which is going to remind you no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how bad it feels, that you're never alone and there's going to be a hundred people or 200 people or however many people are in that West African tribe or that East African tribe, uh, that there, there's going to be people that are willing to make the effort to spend three hours of their Sunday to wrap you up in sheep intestines or pig intestines and to hurl abuse at you and throw dust and blood and whatever because they care about you and ultimately they love you and ultimately they need you. They need you to take up your role in that tribe. You, they need you. They don't need you sitting in the corner. They don't need you not coming out of your grass hut. They need you to be the person, to be the young man or the, or the middle-aged man or the young woman or the middle-aged woman. They need you to play your part and they, they, they're going to make sure, <laughs> they're going to make sure uh, that you know that. And, such a tremendous, such a tremendous blessing to be in that environment. And I think as much as it might sound disgusting and, and traumatic, I think I would, I would like the, the West African depression cure more than the, more than the, uh, the four, the, you know, the four repeat prescriptions of, 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 of Luvox, I, I believe. Now, Getting on to this idea of finding the trout's ear is is very similar, but I mean we still don't do that. We still don't do that. I had I had a friend who was only nineteen, but was very very overweight, and he was not sleeping, and he wasn't sleeping probably for the same reason that I haven't been sleeping for the last fifteen years because well he I wasn't sleeping because I was drinking too much. My body was trying to process alcohol and put me to bed and try and regenerate myself overnight and restore my health overnight. But instead, it was spending a lot of time um, just literally trying to get this booze out of here and, and, and process the sugars and the calories and all the rest of it. Uh, so this this 19-year-old friend of mine uh, was, was very much overweight. Now, he wasn't a drinker at all, so he was it was all food weight. And I don't know if there's a hierarchy of of uh, if your overweightness is due to booze or if your overweightness is due to food. I don't know if there is a health hierarchy involved in that. I'm sure there is. There must be one version must be healthier than the other. Maybe. I don't know. But he went to the doctor as a 19-year-old, couldn't sleep, and this doctor just gave him uh, a handful of, of sleeping. Not, not a handful. He gave him a, a prescription to go get himself a handful of of sleeping tablets. Uh, I've never taken sleeping tablets, but I've heard you you sleep very well, but you don't go into a REM sleep or something like that, or you don't you don't dream when you're on sleeping pills, so it's not really a proper sleep. Uh, so your body might get regenerated, but your mind doesn't, or something like that. And this doctor never said to him, "Hey, maybe we should consider 
losing 30 kilos off your frame and then if you still can't sleep then maybe we could have a look at at, at getting you some sleeping pills uh whereas he could have perhaps and this is obviously uh, this is obviously a perhaps but he could have said why don't you why don't you stop working why don't you stop studying why don't you fill a backpack a small backpack but why don't you fill a backpack with a water bottle and some food and why don't you go off and don't come back until you can find until you can bring me back a trout's ear now this whole story only works if trouts don't have ears now as far as i know trouts do not have ears but if there's any fish experts uh, listening and i don't even know the word for a fish expert uh, i know is it an ornithologist is a bird expert i think what's a fish expert a fish expert would be i have no idea i have no idea i was going to say an aquinologist but i doubt that's the uh, I really, really doubt that's that's the case. If you have any idea what a uh, fish expert is called, uh, please let me know. Send me uh, send me the answer. Talkingwildmadness at gmail.com uh, or leave a leave a voicemail on the uh, on the podcast link, and um, yeah, I'll, we'll play it on the next episode. So, assuming trouts do not have ears, and my friend would have been sent away on a quest essentially, on a quest to go and find a trout's ear. No university, no job, that all stops. No relationships. Now, not that he was in any danger of getting himself a girlfriend, by the way. You you can't walk around 30 kilos overweight. And me saying 30 kilos, I think he might have been 40 kilos. So you cannot walk around at 40 kilos and expect to be uh, uh, maintaining a, a maintaining a, a female's interest or even gaining the attention of, of, uh, of a female uh, if you're if you're if you're walking around 30 40 kilos overweight so he had to drop the relationships which wasn't a problem because he didn't have any he had to drop his his job he worked at um, oh, I won't say where he worked at in case in case he's listening I don't want to hurt his feelings but he had a he didn't he had a job that he could have replaced in a heartbeat he wasn't a thoracic surgeon in a Vancouver hospital or anything like that. Uh, and he worked part-time. He was going to study at university, which he has since dropped out of. That's That might that might give it away. If you're listening, you know I love you. Anyway, so all the things that he would have had to have dropped in, a, in an effort or in order to pursue this quest of, of going after and bringing back a trout's ear, are things that he has kind of have fallen by the wayside anyway. There is no girl in the picture. Uh, I don't think he has the job that he had at this time, and I don't know if he has a job to replace that because of what's happened with the with uh, in the last six months. And he's taken a, a sabbatical from his university studies, so he has already given up all these things, but not in an in an attempt to go and get that trout's ear. He's just given. Who knows? He's given given these things up out of apathy. Um, but imagine if he had have set off, and he had set off on foot on this quest. He couldn't have taken a vehicle. Now, 
down here where we are, which is the south coast of Western Australia, Western Australia being one third of the entire country of Australia. It has one city and nothing else, but it does have a lot of bush. It has a lot of rivers. It has a lot of estuaries and beaches. And this man could have spent the next year or maybe the next two years walking around the southwest, filling that water bottle that was in his backpack from rivers or from you know, from taps out of campsites or it's not like he's back in medieval Iran. There's plenty of places you can get fresh water for free. Get yourself to a primary school on the weekend. If you haven't got one of those, hopefully, if you haven't got one of those electronic bracelets that tells you you have to be 50 metres away, I don't think he had one. He could have done that. And then he could have uh, basically learned how to live off the land while searching for the elusive trout's ear. Heaven forbid I'd say he would learn how to fish, which I think he knew how to do anyway because he grew up on a river. So if he had to spend the next year walking, fishing, drinking water, and looking for, looking, looking to see if he could catch a trout and then finding the trout that have ears and then carving off the ears from the trout. I imagine that this young man would have emerged from the bush, from the river systems of the southwest, and he would have he would have emerged 30, 40, maybe even 50 kilos lighter than when he went in. And you know, he might have even he might have had a he might have found a bag of trout's ears or a bag's worth of trout's ears. If you're really looking hard enough for something, even if it doesn't exist, uh, sometimes you end up finding it anyway, or sometimes you end up finding something very similar to it anyway. Uh, or he might have gone completely insane, and he might have he might have gone completely insane. He might have died of, of hypothermia and loneliness, and he might have, or he might have written a book of poems about trout's ears uh, of, of things he, he never could have uh, never could have discovered. So obviously, it could have gone either way. It could have gone, uh, it could have gone one way or the other. Now, I like to think in my apocryphal, allegorical, metaphysical, metaphorical glass that it's half full. I would like to think that he would have made it out alive and he would have made it out well and he would have come back weighing 70 kilos instead of 120 kilos and maybe maybe he didn't get the trout's ear that's fair enough but maybe he did have a book of poems written in uh, Japanese haiku style about trout's ears or about ears of different fish or maybe he caught a fish that did have an ear maybe and maybe he called that trout, and maybe, maybe he carried, uh, maybe he dried that fish on a rock somewhere, maybe, maybe on Cathedral Rock uh, at Windy Beach. Maybe he walked that far, and maybe he dried a, that that trout. That, well, the fish that he called trout, maybe he dried that on a rock, and then maybe he had it lacquered or he covered it in in, in melted sap from a gum tree, and then he wore it around his neck. And, uh, and then he walked back home to his childhood home by the river, now weighing 70 kilos instead of 120 kilos. And when he knocked on the door, uh, his mother would answer the door and she wouldn't recognize him because he looked like a different person because he now was the different person. He now was that person who was inside buried under that layer of fat and shame and depression and insomnia and darkness. And she would 
be seeing her son for the very first time as he would be seeing himself for the very first time. And it only would have taken 12 months and he would have got to see uh, the, the majesty of the Southwest. But instead, what has he got? He has a, he has a, he has a, an endless repeat prescription for some shitty pharmaceutical drugs that haven't worked, by the way. He did this over six months ago and he still isn't sleeping. He's still in the same condition. But that man with the trout, the earless trout lacquered in, 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 uh, in gum ooze and gum sap hanging around a necklace that he made out of, uh, out of dried, twisted uh, paperback rope around his neck who's tanned and muscular and slim and powerful. That man exists, and, but he's walking around inside this other man. And he's, I think he's waiting to come out. He's waiting to go on his quest and he's waiting to come home to kiss his mother and go upstairs and sleep in his bed a full night's sleep.